Thank you for having me. This book is is quite extraordinary. Can you take us right back to the beginning? How did you come to meet Charlie White? Well, uh, my wife and I had moved our family full of young kids from Washington, D.C., where we had lived for many years, uh, out to the middle of the country uh, for a change of life, a little bit easier place to raise a family. And uh, we had just moved into our new home. Uh, House was still full of half-empty boxes. And one Sunday morning in August 2007, I went outside to get the newspaper And um, I looked up from my driveway to see that uh, just across the street, uh, my new neighbor was in his driveway, just a pair of swim trunks on, bare-chested, muscular and hearty, uh, washing his girlfriend's car with the garden hose and a soapy sponge. He waved to me, and uh, the thing about it was he had just celebrated his 102nd birthday. So at age 102, Charlie White was up on a Sunday morning hand-washing his girlfriend's car after a obviously uh, a joyful date the night before. <laughs> and uh, I thought to myself, this is someone I need to get to know. Absolutely. Did When you looked at him, did, I mean, did he appear to be 102 years old? By the, by the way you're describing him, he looked, you know, no. incredibly sprightly and, and in good physical he, health. He, he was indeed. He, he was in excellent physical and mental and emotional health. Um, he was a uh, full physical specimen. He understood that life had uh, dealt him an incredibly fortunate genetic uh, hand and he had uh, managed to stay healthy uh, long after most people are gone, and um, he he went on that way. You know, when you meet somebody who's a hundred and two, you don't think you're going to be starting a long friendship. But in my case, uh, I got to know uh, Charlie, and we were friends for seven years. Wow. Now you you mentioned the fact that you know he was in really good health, and and I also mentioned in the introduction that he was constantly asked about the the secret to his longevity, as most people are at that age. What was his response to that? Luck. (laughs) He had no illusions. Charlie was a doctor himself. He was a physician. He understood how the body works and how it stops working. Um, And he he knew that he had... uh, had gotten very lucky in terms of his genome. He didn't have any lurking diseases. He didn't pick up cancers in middle age. He also uh, was very fortunate in terms of uh, avoiding uh, the kind of accidents that can shorten uh, lives along the way and uh, indeed shortened his father's life. His father was killed at 42 in a freak accident when Charlie was just eight years old. Uh, Charlie buried uh, uh, two wives. He buried a, do- uh, a stepdaughter who, who died uh, early of cancer right before Charlie turned 102. And he understood that it was nothing that his stepdaughter had done wrong and nothing that he had done particularly right, but that was just uh, the luck of the draw. What he did understand was how to make life count how to make it 
oneself useful, uh, well-adjusted, no matter how long your life is. I think he understood that the length of a life is not as important as its depth and its breadth. Mm. So he was a doctor, and he, you know, obviously witnessed and lived extraordinary change in the medical world. How did he view that? Yeah, it, you mentioned in your introduction, which was wonderful, um, uh, that I wrote this book in large part for my kids to to use Charlie's uh, adaptability and resilience to uh, to sort of show the way through what will surely be a century of very great change that lies ahead for them. Uh, Charlie uh, had his career completely upended by medical advances uh, around the middle of the century, especially around World War II. He was trained at a time when doctors really couldn't cure anything. Uh, they could uh, treat injuries, they could set bones, uh, they could lance boils, this sort of thing. But they really didn't have good cures for diseases because antibiotics and other uh, antimicrobials, etc., hadn't been uh, developed yet. And so they were more like wellness coaches almost, grief counselors. They, they, their skill was uh, what came to be known as the bedside manner how well they could make uh, patients uh, feel confident and comfortable while natural immunity was uh, either winning or losing uh, the battle for life. Um, that's That was his training. That was the career that he made. That was the career that was destroyed during World War II when penicillin was developed and medicine became a matter of specialties. Uh, Charlie pivoted, uh, got training as an anesthesiologist, one of the first in the United States uh, to uh, be licensed in that new specialty, and went on to a second great career as one of Kansas City's leading anesthesiologists. So that adaptability, that uh, willingness to make a friend out of change instead of being paralyzed by seeing what you know uh, become obsolete. Charlie was one of the early, uh, uh, earliest uh, people I've met to understand that learning is lifelong, that you don't go to school w when you're young, uh, fill up your brain and, and have that carry you for the rest of your life. You have to be learning and adapting all the way. Mm -hmm. Pivot, you know, that, that, that was the buzzword of the last couple of years, really, and, and our ability to do so. Um, now, you, you mentioned he was one of the first pioneers of... Um, uh, anesthesiology, wasn't he? And there's a great story yes. about how he came across that. Can you share that with us? Well, it was, uh, in, it, it, anesthesiology was basically a, a, a back, to the extent that it existed at all before World War II, it was a, 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 a place where you would put failed doctors, alcoholic doctors, uh, doctors that you wouldn't trust with a scalpel in their hands. Um, it was not considered a, a, a decent, respectable thing to do. But then, uh, you know, with this terrible factory of, of illness and injury that was the war, um, 
all sorts of new techniques were developed. They learned how to uh, do uh, thoracic surgery inside the chest without uh, collapsing the lungs using endotracheal tubes. They learned how to deliver anesthetics through uh, IV lines. They learned how to do local pain blockers and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden there was this burgeoning uh, specialty called anesthetics that uh, allowed surgeons to do uh, more and more dramatic and, and wonderful surgeries. Uh, Charlie uh, put his hand up basically in the Air Force and volunteered to go get uh, a 90-day crash course in anesthesiology at the Mayo Clinic in uh, Minnesota. And uh, so instead of coming home to a, a dead practice as a as a leather bag carrying doctor, um, he came back as the first uh, anesthesia specialist with a Mayo Clinic uh, seal of approval. Um, it was a wonderful reinvention of his life. And uh, it, it's a great example for all of us who are in fields threatened by technology in one way or another. There's that great story about the, the horse trough too. <laughs> <laughs> Can you can you just briefly share yeah, share that with us? Well, and another of the techniques that was developed in the war was the idea that you could operate on the heart, uh, that the heart was a muscle that you could cut into and uh, initially reach in there and maybe remove pieces of shrapnel and save the lives of injured soldiers. Uh, after the war, uh, surgeons began to think of different uh, heart ailments that could be treated uh, as well. And uh, one of them, uh, Charlie and his uh, friends on a surgery team uh, decided they wanted to try in Kansas City. The problem was there was no such thing as a heart-lung machine. And so the risk was that the patient would bleed to death while you were doing a quick uh, heart surgery. You could, they figured out that you could uh, you could, you know, manage this danger if you could lower the body temperature of the patient. That would slow down the flow of blood. And Charlie needed to figure out how to do that. One day, he was out at his farm where he had a couple of horses, and he noticed the big oval tank that they kept the water in for the horses and other livestock called a horse trough. He realized that he could fill that with ice and put a patient inside, and that would cool down the body enough to operate. So for several years, the the leading edge of uh, open heart surgery in Kansas City, Missouri, was Charlie White's uh, horse trough. It's a it's a great rule of thumb about how change really happens. Uh, it doesn't necessarily come in one fell swoop. Oftentimes, it's a matter of taking one step at a time being experimental, being flexible. Obviously, uh, they don't use horse troughs anymore. Uh, but for a couple of years uh, in Kansas City, that was the uh, cutting edge of medicine. Mm. I'm speaking with David Vondrelli. His new book is called The Book of Charlie, Wisdom from the Remarkable American Life of a 109-Year-Old Man. Now, David, you write um, that talking to Charlie is like falling into a history book. What are some <laughs> of the stories that he told you that 
made you feel like that, you know, six degrees of separation from some of those big historical events and figures? Yeah. Um, well, he, uh, he as as you said, he, he was born before automobiles, really, uh, before uh, anyone was flying around uh, in the sky, uh, before there were moving pictures or uh, voices coming across the airwaves. And he lived long enough to see people uh, on the International Space Station, to see r- rover robots on the surface of Mars, and uh, to to use an iPhone. Um, all of these miracles happened, you know, in his lifetime. And more importantly, not just the gadgets, but the social and cultural revolutions that came about because of those things. Uh, and uh, he he just kept bumping up against history. He His home in Kansas City was about three blocks from the first uh little studio where an artist named Walt Disney uh, was trying to start his career at the same time. Uh, he, uh, he, he, when he was 16, he graduated from high school and was one of the first people to take an automobile across the country from Kansas City to Los Angeles. And one of the other passengers was a, a boy named Edgar Snow, who went on to become one of the world's most famous foreign correspondents, the first Westerner to interview Mao Zedong. He uh, wound up operating at one point on the president of Peru with uh, Harry Truman's personal White House doctor uh, in the in the crew. Uh, he, he, one of my friends referred to him almost as a as a Zelig sort of character or or Forrest Gump, uh, in that he just kept bumping up against history. And of course, when he, he came back from operating on the president of Peru with, um, I think it was a pet monkey, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, the the uh, president of Peru was so happy with the surgery that he uh, sent the do- visiting doctors, uh, he gave them a Peruvian Navy ship to take them up the Amazon. few uh, Westerners had ever been into the Amazonian jungle at that point. And they were met along the way by somebody selling little capuchin monkeys. And two of the doctors bought uh, monkeys, (laughs) smuggled them back into the United States. Uh, One doctor was married, so that monkey didn't last long. But Charlie was a single man at that time and kept his monkey for years. (laughs) Now, David, this book, The Book of Charlie, it's a big departure from your usual writings. You know, you've, you've penned more than 60 cover stories for Time magazine, including uh, high-profile pieces on Barack Obama, the deaths of Michael Jackson, Osama bin Laden. And, of course, you know, you've written five books. Uh, what made you decide to write this book about Charlie? And, how, know, and how difficult was well, it, ahead. actually? Sorry. <laughs> It turned out to be a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I hear people sometimes refer to, oh, that book will just write itself. I've never met such a book. They don't seem to write themselves for me. (laughs) But um, uh, I will say that this something about these times that we're living in uh, made me feel that Charlie's story should be 
should be told. Uh, we live in a very politically divided time, uh, but no more divided than the 1920s when uh, the Ku Klux Klan controlled large parts of the United States uh, with their uh, anti-immigrant and, and uh, uh, racially intolerant um, uh, ideology. Charlie lived through a worldwide pandemic in the 1918-1919 flu. He lived through uh, the kind of you know technological and career dis you know disruptions uh, that I described. He lived through two world wars with their tremendous destruction, periods of great uncertainty about the role of uh, the United States and of democracies in the world. He lived through the largest economic crisis in uh, recorded history, the Great Depression. And so the takeaway from that for me is that we've seen these things before, and there are ways to approach troubled times, divisive times, uncertain times uh, with equanimity and with confidence and even with joy. Uh, and that we need to be reminded of that. Absolutely. And and in the book, he talks about his bad decisions as well, didn't he, throughout his life? One of the great things about Charlie was he understood that our mistakes make our uh, make up our lives as much as our successes. And he took great joy in, in bad calls that he made along the way. Uh, he, for example, uh, he, he he did some skiing um, during World War II when he wasn't at work as a doctor. And after the war, some of his ski buddies uh, said that, hey, we're going to develop a, a ski resort in Colorado. You should invest with us. You should come in on this. Uh, it's it's going to be in Aspen. And uh, Charlie said, that's crazy. That's just a ghost town. Um, of course, that would have been a good investment to make. He had other stories like that. But he, 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 they, were, they were badges of honor, just like uh, his greatest successes, uh, because he understood that uh, we're, we're, we're the, you know, the, 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 the composition of all that goes into our lives, our mistakes, as well as our as our victories. Mm. Do you think Charlie was was a philosopher without without really knowing it? I thought I think so because obviously I've written the the book of Charlie about the philosophical lessons I I found in his life. I think he would be surprised to be in a book of philosophy because uh, he often denied that he had a philosophy of life. He said that he lived by his mother's uh, admonition, which was to do the right thing. Uh, actually, that's not a bad philosophy of life. That's a pretty, pretty good one, and leads us through a lot of of uh, tough, tough situations if we just focus on it. I, I came up with a theory that uh, you know, as we go through life, we start out by finding the complication in life. You know. From our innocent little world of childhood, we learn that life is not so simple, and uh, it's a little more complicated than that, and on the one hand, and on the other hand. But if we live long enough, and Charlie lived tremendously long, 
we move into, we might move into a phase of life where we simplify and we begin to boil our experiences down to some core lessons. And those sound like greeting cards, maybe, or Facebook memes. They're things like find joy, uh, enjoy wonder, uh, do the right thing, uh, be kind, be soft sometimes, take risks, make mistakes, learn from them. Charlie wrote all these down uh, on a sheet of paper near the end of his life, these little lessons that he had boiled his life down to. And uh, we realized that these things uh, are familiar, not because they're trite, but because they are the truth of how to live. The operating code for a happy life, I think you uh, you called it. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe uh, this book is a, a reminder to take time to talk to your elderly neighbours. I absolutely hope that some readers will take this as an encouragement to talk to their parents, their grandparents, their neighbours. Uh, it's so easy in modern life to... Uh, you know, drive your drive our cars into our garages and walk in the house and never even see our neighbors. And yet, uh, as this book demonstrates, we're surrounded by human miracles, people who have things to teach us, people who have stories to delight us. And uh, it's really, I'm so glad that Charlie was as magnetic as he was, as kind as he was, and drew me in to uh, to enjoy his friendship. The book is called The Book of Charlie, Wisdom from the Remarkable American Life of a 109-Year-Old Man. David Vondrelli, thank you so much uh, for sharing this with us and uh, congratulations on such a fabulous book and um, telling Charlie's life. Well, thank you very much for your interest. I've always wanted to see New Zealand but at least this way I've talked to New Zealand. You certainly have. Well, you're welcome here anytime. Thank you so much.